Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And I'm really pleased today to have two guests for our podcast. The first is Dr. Kristen Kroeschel. She's with the Department of Physical Therapy and Human Movement Sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Welcome, Dr. Kroeschel. And our second guest is Dr. Sally Dunaway-Young, and she's with the Department of Neurology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Dunaway-Young. Thank you, Dr. Jetty. Thank you for having us. The title of the article that they published recently in PTJ is Clinical and Research Readiness for Spinal Muscular Atrophy. The time is now for knowledge translation. I was really interested in your work because I think there is a real challenge for rare diseases and conditions. And so I really look forward to talking to you about the framework that you've developed in the area of spinal muscular atrophy. I'm going to give a little summary of the background of your work, and then we can talk about it, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Spinal muscular atrophy, or I'm going to refer to it as SMA, it's a genetic disorder, and it affects one out of every 11,000 infants. And over the past two decades, there's been really significant progress in understanding both the pathophysiology and the molecular genetics of SMA. And it's ushered in a new era of translational medicine and treatment. Treatments include splicing modification, gene therapy, upregulation of muscle growth are rapidly changing the outlook for many individuals who have SMA. And it's substantially modifying the clinical course. And we now have clinical research studies demonstrating that early treatment is most efficacious. The recent implementation of newborn screening programs for SMA is also aiding in identifying pre-symptomatic patients, allowing for proactive treatment referral. So with these advances, it remains critical, according to the authors, to understand and advocate standard of care best practice for clinical management, because many individuals will continue to present with significant disease burden despite treatment. I'll start with my first question. I think listeners would be interested in knowing how the current approach to physical therapy and other rehabilitation interventions has changed given some of the recent advances that I just summarized from your article. Certainly. I think prior to discovery and implementation of pharmacologic treatment for SMA, rehab was really based on comfort and maintaining function and slowing the secondary sequelae of disease progression. And currently it seems that there's been a shift and treatment is now more proactive and intensive. This is based on what parents and adults with SMA are reporting and what we hear from therapists both across the country and internationally. It seems that children diagnosed early and or being treated with disease-modifying therapies are receiving increased services and possibly more proactive care. 
Have you seen a reduction in secondary conditions based on that, or has that research not yet been done? I think that research has not yet been done. We are starting to look into that in regards to several things, both scoliosis and range of motion and contractures and function in general, but I don't think that research is ready for um, wide dissemination at this point. We're only just beginning those studies. I think part of this also goes back to prior to um, the availability of treatment, it seems PT was often provided, but it was stopped sometimes early or stopped because of lack of progress. And now that lack of progress isn't really happening. And both patients and PTs feel like it's a new era and are working really creatively and proactively to try to supplement the patient's progress. The potential now for milestone attainment um, or functional gain really seems to become a key motivator in this shift for both the patients, the families, and the therapists. And while one might say that it has been somewhat facilitated by the evidence that's come out from the clinical trials showing how well the patients are doing, um, I think the shift really towards more intensive PP really seems to be primarily supported by, at this point, Phil, anecdotal reports from both families and therapists that those on treatment have even better results with the support of PT to enhance and facilitate outcomes. And while I know that most of this is anecdotal, I suspect strong avenues of social networking, support and discussion among, you know, SMA families has really also driven some of this change. Well, hopefully our evidence base will improve as you and Dr. Dunaway Young and others continue with your research. One of the things that really piqued my interest in your article is that you talked a lot about the, and did, the needs assessment. And one of the challenges is that SMA, like other rare conditions, is really, it's challenging to provide rehab professionals with the knowledge base that they need to really treat these individuals. So based on the work that you've done in your needs assessment, uh, what are the, the major challenges that you see out there among rehab professionals? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. The opportunities for professional development are quite limited, especially for a rare disease. And I think our needs assessment really pinpointed that obvious that PTs working with SMA really need more support. They need more education and they need more mentorship opportunities. Um, the standard of care for SMA was recently updated in 2018, and it included care considerations um, with parameters for dosing some of the interventions that are recommended. Those including like positioning, embracing, stretching, promoting mobility and function and exercise, but those are all largely based on expert consensus. But we learned from the needs assessment that clinicians worldwide really needed exposure to these guidelines and the resources to try and enhance their knowledge, not only on best practice management, but also how to assess and evaluate these individuals and how to use appropriate outcomes and how to select those appropriate outcomes outside of the clinical research trial setting. And so I think ultimately we needed more education and trainings. These PTs need more resources and networking in order to promote greater knowledge for treating those individuals. Well, that gets to your knowledge translation framework. And so let's, let's talk a bit more about that. 
In your article, you talk about the SMA clinical trial readiness program. So can you describe that and how that fits into your knowledge translation framework? Of course. So that sort of starts with CureSMA, which is a well-established patient advocacy group. Um, and they've worked for a long time to support the SMA community and drug discovery and clinical care. And more recently, um, after clinical trials, they partnered with the industry collaboration with an overall aim to support new and established SMA clinical research centers by providing educational resources and mentorship with a goal to foster initially more effective clinical trial conduct and care. And part of that was because we learned from the trials, a lot of these patients traveled very long distances to get the drugs and get treatment and be followed. And we really needed to bring this out to the community and where they live. And so the start of the clinical trial readiness program was initially to develop education resources that were specifically oriented towards various study personnel, including the clinical care coordinators, the PIs, and then the clinical evaluators or the PTs. And that's where Sally and I sort of come in here. In our role uh, to start to think about developing these resources and education for PTs, we started with a survey and interviews and sort of an extensive literature review um, and also used our collective expertise and knowledge to identify what we thought were the gaps in readiness and determine sort of key important topic areas to include in training materials and resources, as well as barriers. So some of the things that we identified were that there were limitations in knowledge for therapists on the background on SMA disease and the drug pipeline. They wanted more understanding of standards of care and clinical evaluation, as Sally mentioned earlier. And then also in regards to clinical trials, just the real knowledge of responsibilities and education and training and regulatory um, issues regarding um, clinical trials. And then overall for both groups, an awareness of materials and resources. Sometimes they didn't even know where to find the most up-to-date resources to help them in their situation. And so I think we have sort of came to, you know, one of the most common themes regarding what we found to be a barrier um, to uptake of some of these um, resources for the lack of time and lack of resources and education regarding SMA for therapists. And, re and in regards to the clinical trial readiness program and how it really fits into our knowledge translation framework, um, I think we've been trying to be intentional in exploring and addressing the barriers. Um, if you sort of go back about a decade ago, and I, I, you may or may not be aware of this, but I think Atuguan once noted that um, to create new norms, we need to understand existing norms and barriers to change. And diffusion is a bit of a social process, which I think we all understand. Um, so we can't just provide online resources and education in the classroom. We need to provide ongoing mentorship and human interaction and get out there where the care is happening. And so, and I think then also recently you noted in one of your editorials a few years back that, you know, promoting uptake and use of existing evidence that the point of care really represents 
a critical translation hurdle to move these findings into practice. And I think that's sort of where we are right now is trying to really figure out how to get over that hurdle because while this is a rare disease, it's almost like everybody's coming out of the woodwork and it doesn't feel like a rare disease anymore, at least to us, because so many more patients are present and showing up in different clinical settings, including your outpatient orthopedic settings. Um, and so we really need to get the knowledge out into the clinical settings. That leads me to another question. As part of the program, as I understand from reading your article, you've developed the best practices clinical evaluator uh, toolkit. Now, is that toolkit going to be useful for clinicians or is it primarily focused on people who are involved in clinical research with these patients? And, and if it is designed for clinicians, how do you get the word out and, and get it into people's hands? Yeah, you're right. So our intent was to initially help clinical evaluators understand the standards of care and recognize the challenges and issues they may encounter and help find productive solutions to those challenges. But we realized it ended up evolving to include critical knowledge for any physical therapist carrying out clinical evaluation assessment, um, definitely outside of the clinical research setting, definitely in their own clinical settings. And we really wanted to promote um, clinical reasoning for the physical therapist treating those individuals. And particularly in this new era of disease modifying therapies, as Kristen just mentioned, patients are kind of coming out of the woodwork and seeking treatment when they haven't been getting treat treated or seen by a physical therapist for many, many years. Um, a little bit more details about the toolkit. We incorporated four sections of crucial topics that we felt were important in evaluating SMA. and. We really wanted to highlight our role and responsibility as physical therapists. Um, there's a illustrative figure and a table that is included in the paper that we feel like provides an important timeline of the most important SMA clinical research and educational milestones that physical therapists played a great role in doing, um, as well as examples of SMA studies and research protocols, again, where PTs played a pivotal role. And I think it's important for our community to know that that we are heavily involved and have the um, capacity to do this for other disease groups. We also have a section on the patient evaluation in both clinical and research settings where we review compensations and biomechanics seen in SMA, um, as well as an extensive review of the outcome measures. Yeah, and I think that's a good point you bring up, Sally, because I think that section really is one of the larger sections and really provides an in-depth resource for all of the assessment tools that have been used across the spectrum of SMA and that test all the different aspects of change, including function, strength, endurance, and milestones. Yeah. So it's basically a large PDF file created to be uh, for dynamic use and easy access and navigation to click between topics of interest. And it's pretty much done by putting in internal hyperlinks throughout the document. So it was designed to be used and shared as a quick reference resource. You know, you mentioned uh, the fusion of innovation, Dr. Crochelle, and it really piqued my, um, my interest when I read your article because I know from my readings around the fusion of innovation, one of the keys is to not try to get the word out to everyone, but to really identify the early adopters and then to really work with them and, and hope to kind of diffuse the innovation further by really focusing on those early adopters. 
have you taken that approach in the in the best practices workshops that you've been sponsoring or have you been trying to just go out there and hit everyone so i think that's a great question i think we've maybe been a little multifaceted i think initially we were really focused on the early adopters which were those clinical evaluators in the clinical trials knowing that those are the people that would be the go-to people if a child who came to your setting for a study then went home and needed treatment and a PT got involved at home, they would be reaching out to those therapists with the knowledge base. And so we sort of started there and that was where sort of our biggest emphasis initially was. But I think we also felt like multimodal dissemination is fairly critical and we were trying to be somewhat intentional in making this document public and open access because we also know that a lot of these patients were going to be seeking care that were not in clinical trials and that were not involved with these more experienced centers. And so we felt like we needed to try to tap into those areas that were less well-educated. And I think that's where the clinical trial readiness program comes in a little bit in that they selected sites in the clinical trial readiness program that were in areas where they knew we don't currently have large clinical trial sites. We don't have people who have been really well-established SMA providers in trying to then intentionally work with those sites to bring them more up to speed and educate and bring them up to par. So while sometimes in those sites, we found that clinicians were very new to SMA and other times they were very experienced with other neuromuscular diseases or even SMA, there was like a variety. We are trying to get those targets first, but we also put it out there publicly, you know, it was a download at CureSMA um, under their research and clinical trial readiness site. And we also also put it out in, you know, on media sites such as Twitter and Facebook groups, just so there was an awareness because we feel like this is such a new area and so many people were having so many questions. Sure. And I think, you know, we also have included as a link in our um, Step In SMA website, which we hope to discuss a bit later as one of our prongs of innovation and trying to move this forward. I think we're also really excited now that, you know, by having this article published in PTJ and providing the toolkit as an appendix, we'll also be hitting therapists that aren't just maybe involved with the pediatric population where most of the clinical trials have been done, but also those who are involved with adults and older adults as well. So we feel like, you know, that's another means of dissemination, but I definitely agree that, you know, the earlier adopters and bringing it from the experienced people and then trying to you know, spread it out that way is an important aspect, but we were also in a, I think a critical time period of uptake and all of this happened so fast. I mean, drugs came so fast, the kids improved so quickly, more drugs came. It's sort of like been a, we've been very involved from the beginning. I think it's been a bit of a, you know, an ongoing cycle of how to figure out how to do this best and be most sustainable in the long run. Well, it's very exciting. I want to switch gears a little bit with this next question. In your article, you talk about the importance of newborn screening and early intervention, particularly with respect to um, improving efficaciousness of treatment. 
Tell, tell listeners a little bit about the extent to which screening and early intervention is being done currently uh, for SMA. Uh, is that just beginning or do you feel that people are really out there doing the kind of uh, early screening and intervention that needs to be done? So I'm going to take this one and then I think Sally is going to pop in. Um, but I think we need to maybe step back for a minute and describe what we mean by newborn screening. So because SMA is a genetic disorder and we now have disease modifying therapy and we know that treatment is improving outcomes, early diagnosis and screening obviously becomes quite important to allow for earlier access to treatment. And while the diagnosis of SMA and or even early diagnosis in some cases has been around for quite some time, state and federal newborn screening programs for early identification using the newborn screening panel at birth are actually relatively new in this disorder. This is somewhat, I think, ethics related. Early screening and diagnosis only makes sense if there's a treatment. So it's only really been in the last five to six years that full-on advocacy to add SMA to newborn screening panels has really been successful. And there's now 47 states with fully approved newborn screening. And that's really secondary to this multitude of key players, the families, advocacy groups, industry, medical professionals, ourselves. This is where knowledge translation, education, and social networking is really in widespread and has led to and facilitated its widespread adoption on the newborn screening panel. Um, currently, there are only three states in the US that have not, don't have formal newborn screening programs implemented. You know which ones they are, Dr. Preshaw? Um Yes, I think I can say them. Nevada, uh, Nevada, South Carolina, and Hawaii, I believe. Wow, I wouldn't have wouldn't have guessed those three. It's kind of it. A lot of it has to do with how advocacy works, how the states work. Every state makes a different amount of time, and every other day we hear the other states on board. And I'm sure those three states will be on board soon. So but sort of back to the role of the therapist here. You know, now that newborn screening at birth is in place and is available early, we have a lot of additional work to do in the field of PT. This is where translation of knowledge becomes really important um, and especially related to the early intervention programs. We know from our experience that, you know, early diagnosis and treatment, while we'd love to say it's the end and we're near a cure, we're not. Way to go. Um, there is a lot of education that remains for us as PG experts in this field. Many of the children who were really early have done extremely well. Children who were never expected to sit or walk or roll are now standing and walking due to the efficacy of these treatments. However, ongoing education for families and therapists regarding assessment and intervention needs is really quite clear. Not all patients are responders. And even those that are responders um, or even stand and walk, they still present with weakness and endurance and potential other challenges that we need to work to better identify so that we can effectively target them um, and improve their activity interactions and participation. And this is really also where we need education. So PTs and others using intervention and creative solutions start publishing um, you know, with mentorship to get them disseminated in a timely fashion. 
Dr. Delta Young, you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to say we learned from these workshops that we did an engagement with um, early intervention specialists that EI, we, there needs to be more education so that EI programs do consider SMA diagnosis as one that warrants immediate qualification for services. And I don't think that's necessarily the case right now. Um, there also needs to be, we learned a need for the appropriate appropriateness of currently accepted earlier intervention assessments and highlighting the need for SMA tools to be used. We also highlighted the need for early and immediate proactive treatment and that specialists need to be able to identify early signs and symptoms in order to refer for early treatment and early diagnosis to support the best outcomes. Last question. Do you think that the, I really have, I find most interesting your multimodal knowledge translation approach. I think it's very thoughtful and it's great that you're focused on SMA. Do you think the framework is relevant for other rare conditions? Absolutely. I think Kristen and I went through this effort thinking that this could be a model definitely used for other disease groups and that collaboration is key in order to leverage the experience and the expertise of the key opinion leaders that come to the table. And that can be clinicians and therapists and the industry members and sponsors that have an interest in developing drugs for the disease groups and advocacy um, groups, and then the patient community members themselves, as well as academia. And we hope that they'll utilize those stakeholders, take this framework and try to incorporate their no own knowledge inquiry, try to identify the gaps in the education and care delivery, and try to synthesize the literature that they have available um, develop a knowledge product or a best practice toolkit for their professionals managing that disease, finding innovative solutions, and then try to, what, what I think the place we're at now for SMA that other disease groups can learn from us is incorporating a deeper evaluation of how the knowledge product is disseminated and implemented and how that impacts clinician behaviors and patient outcomes. Um, and just trying to come up with more multifaceted educational strategies to hopefully affect long-lasting change and sustainability. I'm glad you mentioned the evaluation component because I think that's really important. So you can learn what really works and what is, is kind of peripheral because you can't do everything. Right. I think another point I might make here too is we've also... In SMA, maybe really have the luxury, and maybe this is because it is a rare disease and everybody's trying to learn everything all at once, but we've really had the luxury of being involved from the very beginning when there wasn't a treatment and then being involved in a very deep level early on as clinical trials came to be because they really, which I felt was really important as a PT is the pharmacological companies really relied heavily on our knowledge of outcomes and our development of outcomes and how to most effectively assess change um, with treatment and SMA. So I feel like that's in, in other rare diseases as well. I think that's something that I'm seeing come about a little bit as people reach out that I think they're recognizing that this is a, an important aspect. PT is really important from the beginning with some of these you know, lesser known or um, more rare diseases. Well, I wanna congratulate you on your work um, and the article. Uh, I think it's really important and uh, 
I look forward to seeing future work coming out from you and your, your colleagues. And thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me about it. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. We appreciate it. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.